Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me are our hosts, Dr. Russ McCullough and Dr. Levi Russell. All right, we got a special guest in, actually uh, maybe even an extra special guest, because uh, this guy is going to be joining our team at the Gortney Institute uh, on an ongoing basis. Uh, his name is Dr. Justin Clark, and he's a recent PhD from the University of Kansas, not too far up the road. Uh, he's been at Ottawa University for how long was it, Justin? Three years? This is my fifth year. Fifth year, wow. Okay. So basically, he's been here, been a superstar in the classroom um, in teaching philosophy and, and some other areas, but generally philosophy and kind of high volume classes. And uh, once he officially got his PhD, which was more recently, he was potentially going to be on the job market. And uh, so I sought to try to bring him on to our team at the Gorton Institute, where we uh, care about uh, things that are philosophical in nature and thought he'd bring an interesting angle for the Institute. So um, Justin is our guest today officially, but he will be a, a regular installment on the podcast as well, uh, you know, subject always to if we have different travel plans or whatnot. But uh, Justin, it's great to have you. It's great to be here. All right. So today I pulled an article from the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. It's, it was uh, written by Dr. Ann Bradley, who was also a guest of ours uh, a while back, and we'll probably have her on again here hopefully shortly. And so it's titled, Why God Has Created Us, Created Us to Value Different Things. So the article gets into a lot of interesting areas that we've talked about off and on in, in the, on the podcast. I wanted to hone in on this idea of subjective value. And I had the opportunity to hear Justin uh, give a talk at an academic conference at the Mises Institute a while back, and he kind of challenged, more than kind of, he challenged the traditional view that economists have taken on this, and this is, in fact, where Anne is, and it, it's a bit of a, oh, a, how should I say, a gray area. I think we, we agree on things, but I think there was a certain way that philosophers had on, on valuation. So before we have Justin chime in here, let me tell you where we're going with this. So the, the economist traditional thought is that everybody values things differently and that's what creates really demand curves and markets. And so when we look at the value that we place on a, on a steak dinner and the restaurant has a price tag of $16.99 for this ribeye steak dinner, if I go and buy that, that means that I value that steak dinner at at least $16.99. In reality, all the people having that ribeye steak that night in the restaurant, let's just say there's 20 people, all 20 people have a different value, monetary value that they would place on that steak. But since we operate in a, in a market where actions are voluntary, the fact that that person wasn't forced to buy the steak but did revealed their preferences and showed that they value that steak dinner at at least $16.99. But in reality, 
I might have valued it at 25 bucks. Somebody else might have valued it at 30. These values could change over time. So if I was really hankering for some red meat and uh, that night I valued the steak dinner at 30, if I go tomorrow night where I just had the ribeye the night before, maybe I only value the steak at $10. Like if I could pick up, if they ran a, a coupon special that said, hey, $10 ribeye tonight, I might be kicking myself a little bit like, oh, I should have, I should have went tomorrow, tonight instead of last night when I went. But that could induce me uh, because now my valuation on steak has changed from 30 to 12, but a $10 coupon might induce me to go to steak again. So our demands and our preferences can change. Uh, economists believe that they're relatively stable over time, our preferences for red meat or whatnot, but certainly can change from day to day according to the law of diminishing returns that the second steak dinner doesn't taste quite as good to me as the, as the, as the first steak dinner. And so this is important in a marketplace so that when we come to some sort of price, how, whatever that mechanism is, um, in the free market, it's going to be potentially consumers bidding for meals and uh, restaurateurs uh, offering meals for sale to cover their costs. So as that starts to become established and menu prices are there subject to the cost of doing business, we now have this interaction of different types of value. And so that subjective value nature is what Dr. Clark pushed back on a bit. And so, Justin, what, uh, how would you, what, what was your thought process there on objective value versus what I just ran through that our values are subjective? <clears throat> So, uh, well, my computer just crashed, okay. so I've recently lost the document that I was looking at. Okay. Um, but my contention is that... Value- we like to go straight from the gut here on, okay. the, on the Wharton Institute podcast. So. Well, my contention is that values are objective. And I think that what happens in economics is there was this... The concept of subjective value is used in a couple different ways... And it's important to disentangle those kinds of subjectivity and to figure out both what economists are saying when they say value is subjective and what they ought to be saying when they talk about value. Okay. So there's a couple different kinds of subjectivity and you can actually see that a little bit in, in the article that we read. Uh, She says something like, well, Values are values for people, mm-hmm. belong to people, and therefore value is subjective. So mm-hmm. one way you think of subjectivity might be something like belonging to a subject. Okay. Um, and that's fine, but automobiles also belong to subjects, and nobody thinks that automobiles are subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so another way you might think of subjectivity is something that is only available to a subject, like only a subject can know whether or not something is the case. So uh, typically, you know, in an undergraduate philosophy class, we'll talk about something like pain here, physical pain. Okay. It seems like it's a mental phenomena that's uh, really, you know, you are the one who has access to your pain. And, uh, and so that's kind of a good, uh, like, uh, the doctors say on a scale of one to 10, you know, what, how do you rank your pain level? Sure. That is intrinsically unique to the person. 
but yet doctors can get a sense of what that means. Even though people's pain tolerances, we can't compare across people. No, yeah. And doctors, of course, will never tell you that they're going to inflict pain on you. They'll just tell you, <laughs> be ready for some pressure. <laughs> there's going to be a little pressure. Yeah. Here. <laughs> so I think there's a, a couple different questions here. One is, what is the ontological status of economic value? Oh boy, here we go. Ontological. Let our listeners know what that means. So ontology is just, you know, kind of what kind of things there are. Okay. And what so, is and what is not? Yeah, another way to phrase this question might be something like, is economic value real or uh, not? Uh-huh. And if we're actually going to answer that question, we need to know what we mean by real also. Another question is, what is the source of economic value? Where does it come from? A third question is, how is economic value apprehended? So like, in other words, how do you come to know it? That, yeah. Yeah, okay. And the fourth is, what is the status of the truth conditions of statements of economic value? This is where we get thick, folks. Status of truth conditions. Love it. That's why we brought this guy on. This is where we get to (laughs) battle our brains. Okay. And so I think really, if we're going to talk about subjectivity, you know, the, the antonym for subjective is going to be objective, right? Mm-hmm. So if the question is objective or subjective, I think we ought to answer that last question first. What is the status of the truth conditions of statements of economic value? Are they objectively true or just subjectively true? And I contend that the statements of economic value are objectively true. Right. Uh, and that's the big statement right there. Right. One of the ways you might think about this is uh, something like, the example you used about buying a, or paying steak for a dinner. steak, the mm-hmm. steak dinner. So is the steak dinner valuable to you? Yes. Is it more valuable than... Uh, Skittles. Skittles. What, is it more valuable to you than $18? Of Skittles. Or $18. $18. Just period <laughs> dollars. Okay. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's objectively more than... Well, what I what the price was, and so a subjectivist might say something like, "Well, mm. look, it's really only in, you know, it's Russ is the only one who can determine whether or not it is more valuable, and it just purely depends on Russ's desires." Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it does, and I think that you know it's objectively true that the steak is more valuable to you than a discarded. The thing that when you pick up after your dog, <laughs> okay. I just think it's objectively true that it's. Are you more, talking about a poop bag, basically? Yeah. Now? Okay, filth. we're going from steak uh, dinners to filth. Okay, got it. And this idea that there is some kind of blurriness around the margins, and that therefore the measurement is purely subjective. Look, just because we don't have an exact ruler doesn't mean that the quantities that we're trying to measure can't be objectively greater or less than each other. So, so that might bring up a little bit of cardinal versus ordinal measurements. That's right? exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, so, and economists fall back on, with preferences, it's ordinal rankings, that we're able to rank bundles. We don't say that we have to have, you know, some sort of measuring stick uh, that's a ruler that's two inches, four inches, five. That's cardinal measurement for our listeners. Whereas ordinal rankings, I think, is I prefer this to this. I prefer a steak dinner to a dog poop. And that that's, you're yes. claiming that 
that statement is objective. Yeah, and uh, there is nothing wrong with saying that ordinal rankings are objective. They mm -hmm. aren't. They might not be cardinal. You can right. get something close to cardinal rankings out of an ordinal scheme, right. you know, right. which is what we do um, with utility functions. Exactly. Um, monotonic <laughs> transformations. Which we don't want to even get into on this podcast. But yes, <laughs> I just thought I'd say something. Yeah, you had, you had to get <laughs> geeky on this. <laughs> yes. So my answers to all of those four questions are to question one, which is what is the ontological status of economic value. I think that economic value is real, but mm -hmm. it's not a physical property. And that's fine. Um, a lot of, I think, what happened, a lot of the reason I think that economists <clears throat> say that value is subjective is because they have this idea of objective, meaning can be measured by I, physics. I and I think it's more cardinal in nature. It's, it's almost saying that it's not cardinal. Well, yeah, or that can measure. be counted. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I think it's also <laughs> a distinction between qualitative and quantitative to an extent, right? Cause we, we always like prices cause they're quantitative, but if we're talking about ordinal that yeah. I think in the human mind, that almost goes into a qualitative state. For mm -hmm. value. Right. So this idea that, that what is real is only what is physical, I think right. is, is clearly false. Clearly. Okay. On that note, that is our cliffhanger. Uh, Dr. Clark's going to explain that uh, after we come back from break. So that'll be our cliffhanger. And so we'll get back to you in 30 seconds. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Please visit our website at 123povertysex.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysex or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith, and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Levi or Russ today. Okay, we're back, and uh, Justin left us with a cliffhanger here on answering uh, what's real and what's not, and so, Justin, you want to continue on with that cliffhanger? Uh, so, I think I was ending by saying that econo uh, economic value is real, but that it's not a physical property. Not everything that is real is physical. Right. 
And even if we look at even a finished physics, should we ever arrive at one, uh, isn't an exhaustive and complete account of the world. Mm-hmm. So expand on finished physics because that that was the new one for me the last I don't know not too long. So ago. we have in physics there are two theories currently, and I mean they both seem to predict the way the world works. So we have the quantum theory and uh, relativity theory, and they both work at you know different levels. Different levels, but they are mutually incompatible with each other. But yeah, we, we haven't have we haven't right proven now. which one's uh, right. Well. I mean, we don't have enough evidence, or nor maybe can we, but I guess that's yet to be determined. So when people say things like, well, physics is the true account of the way the world is, right? you have to say, well, what, what do you mean by physics? Do you mean our current physical theories? Because that can't work. There's a contradiction there. I mean, but quantum theory implies that there is simultaneity objective simultaneity and relativity theory implies that there's no such thing as simultaneity. Mm-hmm. So then you might say, well, oh, actually what I mean by physics is what physics will eventually come up with. Mm. And then you go, what do you mean by that? And they go, well, I mean the theory that, you know, will correctly describe the way things are. And then you go, okay, then you've just told me that the theory that correctly describes the way things are is the theory that correctly describes the way things are. And that's, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love Which it. is correct, but... Uh, <clears throat> it doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah. So, and then there's also a bunch of things that drop out of a finished physics as we currently have it. You know, Hartree Field has an article, I think, called Physics Without Numbers. You know, colors drop out of a finished physics. People, your mother, um, all these <laughs> things that we care about don't seem to show up yeah. in a finished physics. Right. Um, okay. And then there are uh, also whole domains, like math the numbers themselves the integers right they aren't physical and yet the truths of mathematics are as objective as can be Mm -hmm. so there clearly are domains that aren't part of physics that are do have objective truth conditions and uh, my contention is just that economic value is one of those is one of those categories yeah Um, and so that's my answer to the first question. The answer to the second question is that the source of economic values, or where are they? They're properties, so they're properties of objects, and values as properties don't have to be located anywhere. Properties aren't located anywhere. Objects are located places. Mm-hmm. And so values as abstract objects aren't anywhere. Abstract objects don't have any location. They neither come from nor go anywhere. And the same is true of you know, weights and measures. Where are the pounds? Mm-hmm. Where are the inches? There, Inches aren't anywhere. Mm-hmm. Things that are places are however many inches long. So then how do we apprehend value? My contention is that uh, value is apprehended uh, through via intersubjection convert, intersubjective conversion and exchange. So it's <laughs> Love it. Right? And uh, one of the things that I think I heard the word exchange in there somewhere. So that's got to get into trading maybe. Yeah. uh, This is internal exchange of how many of this I'm willing to give up to give something else. Yeah. And one thing I think that kind of is different from what economists traditionally say here is that I think that you can actually learn things about your own values when you go to do exchanges. You learn not only what somebody else values, but you can learn about your own values too through being given the chance to exchange something for something else. 
What's kind of the famous thing? Uh, values don't exist, only trade-offs. I'm not, that's not quite oh, right, yeah. but something along, there's some yeah, kind there, of cliche. Uh, I think that's Thomas Sowell. He says something like, uh, there, there is no, uh, there are no. Absolutes. Only there are no, well, there are no solutions, solutions. only trade-offs. That's go. right. Yeah. There's no solutions. There are no solutions, only trade-offs. It's when you have a problem at hand. <clears throat> should I do this or should I do this? Well, what's the solution? Well, there's, there's no solutions. There's yeah. only trade-offs, some of which might be better than others. Right. Yeah. And that's through analyzing the values, the kind of a cost benefit analysis that economists uh, harp on is missing in the public domain of government. Yeah. And the reason Sowell says that is he says that all all these public policy issues are always framed in the, how do we fix the problem? Mm -hmm. He's like, no, it's just that there are different. If, if you try to quote unquote, fix the problem, you're just going to create a problem somewhere else. So, yeah, and so the trade-off might be, oh, let, we can fix that problem by reducing education for kids. Oh, no, we can't do that. Or we could reduce national defense. But right. in order to, to quote-unquote fix the problem, you're just going to have – it's a trade-off. And yep. people are going to value education and national defense differently in a public domain. And so that, and that issue comes up of why involuntary action of government takes on a different nature than the stake – idea where if you don't want the stake, you don't have to have the stake, but you can't make that same claim with education or national defense because a bureaucrat or a politician is making that decision for us. Yeah. And then just to get back to the kind of subjectivity that uh, sometimes people say values have, think about how you would respond if your college roommate uh, woke you up in the middle of the night and said they were suicidal. Right, that they didn't value their life and therefore they wanted to end it. I contend that you don't say, well, values are subjective. <laughs> and since you are the expert on your values, right. how can I help you? You, know, you no. must know best for yourself. What you think is that this person is making a mistake. They currently don't value <laughs> something that is they that ought does to value. value. Yeah. Um, See, I think, I think this is where we, we get into all kinds of problems with like the, the distinction between value and price. Price is certainly an economic, uh, you know, something we deal with in economics, right? It arises out of an exchange. But value is, is so laden with morality to it that I, I don't think you can just create two categories of value. And, and, and I think this, I, I think where, where I disagree the most with Dr. Bradley's article is, you know, she, she makes this, she makes this analogy to like different types of food you can have for breakfast, right? She's like, well, maybe you might value eggs Benedict more than pancakes or something like that. And it's like, this is a problem I've had for a long time is that we, in economics, we, we have this shorthand where we, where we say the goods are the physical things themselves, but they really aren't right. And it, it throws off marginal analysis and everything. Like for instance, if you, if you have a recipe for a cake and it calls for four eggs, well, what is the marginal unit, right? Because normally we would say that like, well, the first egg is the, the most valuable egg, right? The reality is none of the eggs are valuable unless you have all four of them, right? So the, the reality is you have to have all four eggs to make one cake, right? And so the, the unit of analysis is not one physical egg. I mean, who cares, right? It's those four eggs. That's the marginal unit. And it's the same thing with the breakfast thing. Right, which is doable, like <clears throat> what I'm hearing you say. The fifth egg has zero value to that cake. 
Sure, but yeah, yeah, assuming yeah, but, it'll ruin it or whatever. Right, but it's not like the first one has more value than the second one, right? Right, like there is just one unit there. Yeah, you know, because the, the analogy is yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, but had multiple uses for those eggs, then you can talk about you know this the sliding scale. But the other thing, so so what I'm what I what I get from this is like, well, okay, what you're talking about these two physical entities, right? Eggs Benedict and pancakes. Well, they both have nutritive value, right? So that's where the term value comes in. They both give you nutrition and they both give you some kind of pleasure for eating them. Right. And that's where we talk about utility, but neither of those two things are quantitative at all. Right. They're just, they're qualities, they're qualitative things in our head. And just because some price arises out of the exchange, because I have, I guess, different sort of preferences for one of those qualities. I, I, I guess to me, it's like there's, there's too much of overlap between the economic and the moral here for me to always say that it's the economic one that wins. Right. I was totally with you until that last part. <laughs> well, it's just, I guess what I'm saying is like that to me, it's like there there's, we get value from things from, from having a, a, a way of seeing the world, right? We have a worldview that gives us a, a morality, right? So maybe I mean, there's a faith and economics podcast and we're all Christians here, I guess. And so we, you know, we, we have a Christian worldview that colors our interpretation, right? And that's how we have value for the, we, we assign value to things that way, but the price in the market could be completely distorted from the actual value. Okay. 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 So you're saying that the, again, I always like to not make the word economic, it's the economics of it, like finance. But I think I see what you're saying is that your value that you place on it, that I said, my steak dinner is I, I value it at thirty dollars. Actually, could have more moral and other considerations into that value. However, it was made, but the market, the sixteen ninety nine price, has mixes of all those values yeah. with everybody. Is I guess what I'm saying what is, I, I I think the issue is not that is not necessarily subjective versus objective. However, poorly or or well we're using those terms, I think it's qualitative versus quantitative, because the only, like, in other words, when we say value and we mean the price, I, I just don't think those two things are really the same thing. I think, I think they're different because the value is about the, the services that you get from that steak dinner, right? Whereas the price of that steak dinner is not the price of those services. It's the price of that physical object, right? And so one, the price is in the quantitative realm and the, 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 the nutrition and the pleasure that you get out of eating that steak dinner are qualitative things. Okay. So I'd push back that the, the price embodies all of that. So through market forces, a hundred people, whether 50 people demand the steak or a hundred people sure. that will bring up the market price because those moral considerations of overall value, blah, 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 all the stuff that's embodied in each person's individual value that they place right. on it will tend to bring up the market price. So to some degree, at least, the market price embodies that. Right. But Along with all the costs on I, the seller side. I, I would say that it represents it, but it maybe not embodies it, but it represents it um, in, in the quantitative. At least you know, partially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, I, but I think the problem is, so like maybe a steak dinner is completely amoral, right? Let's say it is. Okay. But when something is a moral question, right? Like, like let's say. A steak know, dinner in India in heavily sure, Hindu right. places, that steak dinner or is if, immoral. Or so. if Russ says, you know, hey, Levi, can I borrow your pocket knife? Uh, you know, I'll pay you two bucks to rent your pocket knife. 
And then you said, I, you know, I want to go kill somebody. With it. And it's like, well, okay, there's a price there, right? You could say that, you know, there's a market for rental of knives, but you know, there's definitely some moral content there that's not being included in that $2 price of me, you know, lending you my knife. Mm-hmm. So can I jump in here and say what I think might be Levi's point and then respond to it sure. a little bit. So you might be saying something like we are kind of confusing value by when we say value we're, and we're talking about price. I have a wider conception of value and merely talking about the price as if it were this wider thing value right, not is leads to all kinds of problems. Is that right. yeah. kind of what you were saying? Sure. Okay. So I, of agree with that. Um, I will go you, you know, one better. I think that values, you know, there are values even broader. I think, you know, consistency is a value that we have and it's a value that even any theory has to have. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I think it's actually impossible to separate values from beliefs. So to even entertain a belief you have to believe other things too. And in order to believe other things for somebody to be said to believe P they have to also believe, you know, not, not P and they have to believe if they believe P then, you know, they believe P or Q. And so one of the things that I think happens is sometimes people try to describe economics as a value free science. And Mm -hmm. part of my contention is that it is impossible yeah. to have a value-free science. Yeah, and I think right. that's what I've Definitely. been saying for and, years and years too. Is right. that, that's what economics is. It's, it's got all of that. Yes. There. And this is also what Levi said when he's talking about, you know, we're, we have the kind of values we do because of the culture that we live in and, you know, be kind of because of the kind of beings that we are. We have that kind of shapes the yeah, values that the, we have. The steak gives you a certain amount of nutrition because you're, you have a certain gastrointestinal system. And all yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, and that's, there's a reason we prefer eating steaks to eating bags of hair, you know, um, there's, <laughs> <laughs> your examples are so <laughs> and then one of the things Russ was saying is about, well, in a market, you know, we want, you know, prices to kind of reflect values. Yeah. We, I mean, we do. That's one of the things we want our institutions to do is have markets that reflect our values. Generally, we don't want murder, murder for hire, drone murder for $11 and 50 cents. We think weekend special. Yeah. You know, even if some, that is somebody's comparative advantage. (laughs) Well, and that starts to drill down on, on having, the constitution and protection of property rights and a proper rule of law and how society's organized that my actions right. won't infringe on but your see, but actions. I, but so see, we I start think, to get into murders and stuff like that. Right. But I think, I think the thing is, is, is and this was, this has something to do, I think with, with Edmund Burke that posed this issue is do, do people, do markets create uh, moral societies or do moral societies create markets that they like, that have characteristics that they like. And I think, one way to think about what you're saying is that markets are just this thing that exists, right? And yeah. that what well, we have, you know, governments to kind of, you know, manage them. But I think, I think it's actually the other way around. I think it's, you know, we have societal institutions that end up forming markets that have certain characteristics, right? <clears throat> Which to me boils down to the humans that are involved in the market. Though. Sure. That's what I always say. Cause yeah. you know, I, I think the market's, are going to exist. It's just a tool. Markets aren't moral. People are. So if you've got immoral acts going on and they're exchanging 
sex and drugs and, and murder or whatever, it's not because the market made them do it. It's sin that made them do it. It's the people that are inherent, right. inherently in the market. Uh, the market doesn't care. The market's amoral. Yes, although they do provide incentives, right? Yeah, it's like if you, yeah. if you allow, if, if, if the societal structure allows a market to, to operate in a certain arena, then, you know, the market is going to, you know, sort of drive everyone to a certain price, right? Or, yeah. you know, like a lot but of But if the incentives are whatever. such that there's big money in murder and you like that incentive because you like money and you go do the murder, that's on you. That's not yeah. the market. So markets provide incentives, but still boils yeah. down to yeah, it doesn't, it's it doesn't, the person who's corrupted. Right. That, yeah. It doesn't reduce your culpability, but it might affect how much of it you get. Yeah. I think those are the different. Yeah, and that's different institutions on yeah rule of law and other things that hopefully evolve from the people. And we still seem like we need a notion of virtue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, that looks like a pretty good place to call that one a wrap. Our first uh, dovetail into some deep philosophical stuff, and it won't be the last time. We'll we'll uh, maybe pick our battles on when we allow Justin to throw out big words, but. Uh, <laughs> It, it should prove to be fun. So uh, on behalf of the Gordon Institute at Ottawa University, we appreciate you listening. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to our uh, podcast and it'll be automatically downloaded to your folder. And that helps us keep momentum. And uh, we do have a little donation button on our website, as well as uh, being willing to hear from you with questions that you might have that we can tackle in future episodes. So other than that, on behalf of the Wharton Institute, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.